Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 68, I speak with Ryan Kevlin, the director of One Medical, that grew 113% last financial year to do over $24 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. We discuss the challenges of moving from the UK to Australia in his mid-20s and learning a whole new market experience being in a fast growth recruitment company first as an employee. How he became the co-director of One Medical, which does medical recruitment, navigating the challenges of staff shortages, international competition, hospital paperwork, labour hire licences and state-by-state variations. We discussed the changing value of university, launching a software business, expanding into new countries and more ambitious future plans. If you're looking for medical placement specialists, placing locum and permanent doctors in Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, UK and beyond, check out onemedical.com.au. That's the number one, M-E-D-I-C-A-L.com. So I'm here with Ryan Kevlin, the director of One Medical. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Hi, Derek. How's it going? Yeah, doing well. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started One Medical? Uh, What did you study? What type of organizations did you work in or what roles? Yeah, before we we get into that, I just wanted to mention... uh, as, I, as I said before, that um, it, despite me being the person that's on this podcast, I don't want to be seen as the person that's taking full credit here for one medical success with the AFR um, and reaching that the, the AFR list. So there's, um, there's, there's multiple people, but first off, there's Ben Lepke, the actual founder of one medical and the co-director. Um, so he, he himself started this business a year before I joined in his bedroom, which we'll probably talk about later. Uh, and then secondly, there's the entire team. So that those guys are the the producers of these impressive numbers that have, uh, have allowed us to reach the list. So I just wanted to say that in the outset before uh, before getting too far into this, because I'd never want to be seen to be one of these people who just comes out of the background as a manager and uh, and tries to take all the credit. Yeah, no, excellent. Thanks for for clarifying that, Ryan. So, so what about in your early days, long before you're involved with One Medical? What were you sort of studying, or, or where were you working? Yeah, I, look, I, I I did an initial year of uh, of studying law at university, and uh, and then I quite quickly realised for a variety of reasons that law wasn't going to be a career for myself. And um, I transferred across into uh, a business degree, and I, I finished that in uh, in two thousand and six uh, in uh, Nottingham Trent University. Um, I, I left university and went straight into recruitment. Um, after you know a couple of months of interviews. Um, so I I'm actually what you know the true definition of a career recruiter. I didn't do something else and then transition into it. I've been in recruitment ever since I moved into the the world of work, so to speak. Um, I started out in a company called SRG Engineering, and uh, I was taken under the wing of a great mentor, a chap called Matthew Lawrence. Um, he took me under his wing and showed me the ropes. He he helped me get my first contractors off the ground in the in the UK market back in those days. Um, I think I was I was a fairly fresh, uh, fresh faced, highly energetic recruiter who have a go at anything because um, I didn't know any better or any different at that stage. So, um, so that's that was the the, the earliest start. But um, I think a lot of people say that they fall into recruitment. Um, so it, you hear it every every recruiter that you hear speak says that they fell into recruitment because there isn't really any formal pathways in many countries to 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 move into recruitment. It's often like most sales roles, it's not seen as a as a formal career path. Um, I actually got into recruitment because um, my father was a hiring manager for a scientific um, environmental company in the UK, and the recruitment companies were trying to get to, trying to sell him staff. And uh, while um, they were trying to sell him staff, he turned around to them and said, "Well, can you can you try and get my son a job?" So they started putting me out to uh, to interview with scientific um, companies themselves. Um, I had a few interviews for jobs that I didn't, I wasn't really either suited for, nor did I, nor did I want in the first place. And after a couple of sort of interviews that um, had a mixed bunch of results, they turned around and said, "Why don't you take a job in recruitment? Because you sound like you'd be good at it." Which, again, is also a bit of a common story that you hear in recruitment that the recruiters get into it because the agency turns around and offers them a job in recruitment. So that's how I, 
that's how I got into that, uh, got into recruitment. But um, yeah, look, I mean, early days, I mean, uh, I did three years in the UK market before I made the move to Australia. Um, that was all in the engineering space, as I, as I mentioned. Um, I left Australia, sorry, I left the UK to move to Australia for a variety of reasons. Um, there were a few personal reasons why I left. Um, and then also I left in um I left I left in 2009 and the GFC was already underway it hadn't it hadn't hit my market in the UK yet but we were imminently expecting to hit the market and at the same time Australia was offering great opportunities for 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 people with the recruitment background to to move across to Australia so um so I I, I saw it as a good opportunity and took that as the move it's a shame it's not quite as uh quite the same glory days these days for the for the brits and the irish moving across to australia and recruitment but uh but at least uh it uh it, it worked out for me at the time um so if before- we go back to when you were a teenager you mentioned you went into law which is again what a lot of people and their parents aspire to was that something uh, a teacher pushed you towards did your parents push you towards were friends going into law and you just kind of followed along I think it's a it's a good career for people that can talk uh, is the is is one of the things I think that's associated with it. Um, it's obviously a highly paid profession as well. It's it can be very interesting in certain circles. Um, I think my father did have a bit of a, a hankering after wanting to be a lawyer himself, despite never getting involved with it. Um, I have two younger sisters um that are both fully qualified lawyers now so um so so you know at least at least somebody in the family chain has managed to become lawyers um but it's uh, it's not myself and it's not my father um i can't actually remember how i started going down that route it was probably partially due to not knowing what else to do and wanting to try and do something that was seen as one of those um the the more staple traditional qualifications um uh, you know as opposed to something that you know is uh, is maybe not quite as uh, as traditional and i mean that would have been interesting uh, family dinners if all uh, you and your siblings and your dad were all lawyers that would have made for some good debates but but were you again you just you were very well sort of spoken were you doing debating was there something that you know people sort of saw in you or you just got the marks and then you just said all right might as well give it a go if um people are pushing on it yeah, I mean, look, I, I was, I was, I got fairly good marks at school, and I went through the usual process in the UK of GCSEs, and then on to A levels in 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 the equivalent of sixth form, and then you get to the stage of university, and you you're weighing up what you want to do. Um, I suppose from a personality point of view, I was, I'm, I'm still, I'm fairly good at holding a debate and an argument. So, you know, it 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 felt like something that would lead to a, a career using using your vocal attributes and uh, and and hopefully making money on the way. But as I say. less than 12 months into that I realized it wasn't for me Um, I then started to see the inside of what the reality of going into law was going to be you know you're essentially a a, a t-boy for um for many years once you qualify in some of these big firms they have you working huge amounts of hours and you know you're looking at not making real money until the you know the the later stages when you get into the back end of your 20s or your early 30s and uh and yeah it, it felt like too hard a journey for me and uh a few personal things going on and I, I needed a change so I, I transitioned to a different university in a different part of the UK and moved into a business degree which I just felt was going to be more more generic and rounded for going into a, a career more likely in some form of sales which again would be using using your uh your voice to to, to earn your income and so was it really more looking at the future and the career pathways versus the day-to-day? Did you enjoy the subjects and the studies and the readings and things like that? Because some people get put off by the study and never even think of the work, but others think ahead a bit more towards what's the, the job like. And is that really what sort of deterred you? It was a bit of both, really. It was it was starting to, as soon as you got into university and started then really opening your eyes to the future world of law then you start to realize what the, the journey ahead is going to be and um, but then also as well when you start reading about stuff like tort law and stuff like that I mean it really does start to get quite heavy quite quickly um you know a lot of people obviously when they think of law they just think of this, the criminal side of law um you know that's just, that's just one side of it um it, you know there's a, a myriad of other sections of law um and I suspect if I had gone into law and stayed in law I'd have either ended up in the criminal side or I would have ended up um probably in the commercial contractual side I would suspect yeah that's what people see on tv there's not a lot of shows made about commercial law but there's a lot made about the exciting criminal law 
Um, and, and so you, you've seen the opportunity to move to Australia. Again, was that following other friends that you saw at the time? Again, you mentioned the visa sponsorship was very easy, especially for recruiters. Um, or was that something a lot of your friends were staying behind and you were moving away to, to something new down under? Yeah, I mean, I was post-university, I actually started, you know, accelerating quite well into a career because I was doing well as a recruiter. And um, at the, I was going to leave the UK after about two years into recruitment, but I was actually doing, to, for want of a better phrase, I felt like I was doing too well to give it up at that stage and it was more of a risk to move. And then, as I say, the GFC started to come on the horizon, the the, the opportunity for Australia started to become more attractive and, and, and a few other reasons as well. Um, I decided to make the move. I followed in the path of Ben, the chap I mentioned before, who's the co-director of One Medical. So we've, we've actually been working together now for about 16 years, I think. Um, he's about four Four years younger than me we met originally in the london area when we were both working for srg engineering and um, he was he was sent down for a training course and given to me to take under his wing to just entertain him for a day or two while he was down in that area and then he'd already been to australia so not long after that about a year later he left to move back to australia and uh, and when he was leaving we we had a chat about me following him on uh, it didn't eventuate straight away but then a year later it did so i actually followed him on and ben got me uh, my first job at the uh, at the company that we were both working for originally in australia and you mentioned the GFC, you sort of started to see the writing on the wall. Was it just seeing things in the news? Was it the downturn in the US market? Was it people in finance and banking in London were starting to sort of struggle and you knew that your industry would be next? What were some of those warning signs you remember that things were really heading south? Well, I'm not sure how old you are, Derek, but whether you remember the GFC, you're probably a bit younger than me, but I don't know if you remember the GFC, but it was like absolute Armageddon. Like everyone thought that the world was ending. Uh, well, certainly from a from a business economy and financial point of view, um, the world was still a pretty challenged place after all the, the onslaught of 9-11. I know that was a few years before, but it, it you know, 9-11 changed the world. And then six, seven years later, we ran into the GFC, which changed the world. Um, the, all of the markets around us were starting to slow down and come to a standstill. Now, I worked in the pharmaceutical section of the engineering trade. So our main clients are people like GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer and people like that. And they work on long-term projects. So they'll often be they'll often set aside X amount of million for whatever it is for a project. And once it, once it's set aside, they spend it regardless. And it's usually a, a two, three, four-year cycle, that project. So we were being told that the projects we were all working on were safe, but as they started finishing in 2008, 9, 10, then there was going to be cutbacks or, or not cutbacks, so to speak, but there wasn't going to be the extra investment being put into new projects. So we were still doing well in a buoyant market while the GFC was happening around us, but we were being told that um, it was going to run very slow a year or two later. I actually don't know whether it did run slow. I believe it did, um, but uh, but I was gone and and I then was a relatively young chap in Australia starting a new career. So I wasn't really I wasn't really paying too much attention to my old market back in the UK. And what was your first year like in Australia? Had you sort of visited before? Obviously, your friends have told you about it. Um, what was it like once you're on the ground and, you know, <clears throat> living very far away from home? I was 26 when I moved over. Um, I, I, I won't lie. It was it was a shock to the system in terms of work point of view because I, I mean, it was a shock to the system in terms of the temperature point of view coming fresh out of Manchester straight into Sydney. Um, but the I'd gone from being semi-expert at what I was doing in the UK in my in my little space to being back down to square one with uh, with ground zero with no knowledge. You know that that transition from being somebody that knew what he was doing every day to somebody that was having to ask questions every single day. Um, I can remember there were being, uh, without sounding too dramatic, I can remember being quite a few evenings um, where I was almost for feeling that much level of frustration not knowing what I was meant to be doing where I was almost in tears for a few months um not every night but you know there was a certain level of frustration um we were a small startup so there was only three or four of us in the office and in the very early days we didn't have any form of management so it was all it was all being self-taught by by the three or four of us together trying to figure out what was best we we didn't have um, a senior person above us in australia that had direct australian experience so it was quite a challenging time um and it, you know three or four months later that 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 calmed down and uh, we we started all doing very well um 
transitioning into Australia. Look, I mean, living in Sydney to a certain extent feels like living in the UK, just the weather's better. Um, and obviously, if you go out onto the east side, there's some beautiful beaches which you don't get in the UK, uh, or certainly not beaches with that uh, type of water and that type of weather. Um, so it, it is something that doesn't it doesn't feel too foreign, you know, that you, you, especially working in recruitment when you're in an expat circle. Um, you know, still to this day, uh, we we do hang around into a fair in a fairly big expat circle. There are there are more Aussies within our circle these days. But in the early days, we were 90 percent expat. So there's always that sort of warm feeling of uh despite being 20,000 Ks away, it, uh, it does have a lot of familiarity with uh, with home. And what about the business environment? You came, like you said, things were um, really bad in North America and UK and Europe sort of space. In Australia, did you feel there was a lot less pessimism? A lot of people talk about Australia sort of skirted past, the uh, skated through the sort of GFC a lot for various reasons. Did you feel a difference on the ground in the attitudes of people? Because I came over into the healthcare market, and people often say that healthcare markets are insulated from from economic, uh, you know, downturns. I don't think that's entirely the case. They they are impacted by economic downturns, but they're the last thing usually to be impacted, and um, because it's such a critical service. Um, so we weren't really seeing any of that. But at the same time, similar to similar to COVID, you know, because in during COVID we had the initial panic that we were going to go out of business and then quite the opposite happened we carried on growing and and you know carried on expanding but even when you're doing well if all others around you are struggling it doesn't make for a positive place um because you just you, you don't you don't want to see people struggling um and you know it, it's just it's like everything if you if you're hearing negativity all the time it's a natural you know, unless you're one of these people that is just boundless positivity and never sees anything negative, which are few and far between, you know, the negativity and the the the, the morale does rub off on you. So, as I say, you know, people in the Sydney market were um, struggling in some sectors, but us in healthcare were um, still, you know, doing well. Um, but again, we were building. So, you know, I was I was up to my eyeballs in trying to learn everything about the market. I, I probably wasn't even paying much attention to the wider Sydney, Australia or the world at that stage because I was uh, rapidly trying to learn every single thing I could about medical recruitment. And what's the origin story of One Medical? You mentioned you weren't on the founding team, but but how did it start and then how did you get involved? Yeah, so the, the 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 large agency that myself and Ben and a few others that are involved, which I'll mention, um, worked for um, from sort of two thousand and nine onwards, and when we when we pulled the start of the locum business together, we took that business from three or four people in on the turn of twenty ten to. Well, it, it went to acquisition in 2015. Uh, I can't remember the exact number of staff that we had when we went when we were acquired. It was probably about 55. So we went from a team of team of three or four in five years to a team of 55 plus. But then it carried on growing after the acquisition, and we went through an earnout stage. So I think when I left in 2018, I was probably responsible for knocking on about 70 staff across uh, across Sydney. And, and Auckland for the Australian and the New Zealand markets, um, with a few people working remotely in places like Queensland and whatnot. Um, we, on that journey, how do, I, how do I put it? We Most recruiters have it in them that they've got their desire to start out on their own because they see it being quite fundamental that the money that they're earning is coming off their own blood, sweat and tears. Um, the reality is that actually running an agency and growing an agency to scale is a substantially different and more difficult task sorry sorry not more difficult sorry substantially diff different task to uh to running a recruitment desk um and it it requires a different level of skills or a different type of skill set um so the the, the rose-tinted glasses of setting up your own agency um are quite different to when you're sat there as an employee um where did one medical start from um it became quite clear that some of us were not going to be staying on for the long haul post the earnout periods after the acquisition, and um, and and at various times we left. Um, ben left in 2016, and he took a year or so out, and then he started one medical in May, I think May 2018, and he started out literally in his bedroom on his own as a one man band. Um, and credit to Ben for that because 
you know, he'd gone from uh, up until 2016 to predominantly being the manager of that business um, with 60, 70 staff underneath him. And he hadn't been a billing recruitment consultant for at least four years, I think, prior to that. So he went back to to square one, back on the tools, sleeve rolled up and uh, and got back into it. Um, I then left in middle of 2018. But like Ben, I also had a, a restrictive covenant period that we had to see out or I had to see out, sorry. So I took a year out, went traveling for about four or five months with uh, with my other half, Kim, um, and then got back into, <laughs> had a few forays into a few other exploratory uh, moments into other areas and other businesses during that 12-month period, um, and then waited until my covenants was up and then got back into recruitment as well. And that's where that's where One Medical was born. So mid-2018 to mid-19, it was a virtually a, a one-man band. And then by mid-2019, we pulled together a couple of other good guys um, that uh, that joined, that, uh, that, that wanted to go on the journey again and, and build something special. And you mentioned a sort of gap year earnout where you couldn't sort of go back into the same industry with a non-compete. What were some of those projects you tried? Was it sort of uh, like a not-for-profit or was it little side businesses or you just wanted to do some holiday work? Or what are those some of the things you did in that, that 12 months? Some some of them are actually things that we're still they're, they're connected to healthcare, but they're not connected to healthcare recruitment. So um, we're, we're actually um, still probably about to do some of those um ideas in the not too distant future but I, I got involved in some consulting work um i found that quite challenging as well because it was consulting in recruitment that wasn't healthcare recruitment um so it's not that i don't understand other forms of recruitment but my passion lies in healthcare recruitment and um you know it it it's uh i don't know it's 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 a weird experience not being able to work in your field of uh, of expertise. So it's uh, something that um, in the future I'd be strongly negotiating a situation where I might be in a different position if the uh, if the event ever occurs again. Um, and and you mentioned also a lot of people in recruitment, especially if they're doing three hundred and sixty degree recruitment, they win a client, they fill the role. You know, they run a half a mil, three quarter of a mil, million dollar desk, but their pay is obviously not a million dollars. And they think, well, why do I need this uh, job? I'll just go out and start my own desk under my own entity and keep a lot more of the upside. But you mentioned it's sort of a lot different to what a people um, actually experience. Is that something you saw other people try and fail or they do okay as by themselves when they try and scale it, they sort of fall over? Yeah, most most good recruiters wouldn't fail starting out on their own. Um, if they fail, they probably weren't that good a recruiter in the first place. Um, but the difference between being a one or two man band sat in your bedroom and just having a real true essence lifestyle business is very different from building anything that's uh, that's scalable uh, and 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 has any real intrinsic value. Um, and w- when you're dealing with hospitals. As much as a hospital does like the fact that you might be a, a solo operator that can provide them the odd doctor, really they need the consistent agencies that can operate five, six, seven days a week. They can respond to stuff at short notice. They can pull magic rabbits out the hat and 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 supply across all the main specialisms as well. So medical recruiters, by and large, work in their vertical. So an emergency medicine recruiter will generally only place emergency doctors. Psychiatry recruiter will only place psychiatry doctors, and so on. There's about nine main medical specialisms and um you know that's why most agencies when they're trying to scale they try and get somebody working in each one of those verticals before they go on to the next stage because you're constantly being hit by requests from hospitals uh, going back to your other point there <clears throat> you know very roughly the industry pays out an average of about a third of whatever you bill so you know if you if you are in the upper echelons of billing a million dollars a year you know your average recruiter is probably going to be on about 330 grand a year in terms of a total package and um, maybe a little bit more it depends um there's always you know commission schemes are the biggest talk of the town when it's down and down in the pub when it comes to recruiters um but you, you get paid roughly about a third of your income but what and then quite rightly so if you're you know a fairly green or or a a more junior recruiter that's coming through the ranks and then you start becoming a more senior recruiter it it can take quite a long time before you realize that the remaining gap the other two-thirds isn't all going into the profit of the business owner's hands there's huge amounts of money that's being invested in stuff that you never really realize so um probably not a conversation for here but you know the reality is that probably a third of that is being spent on all of the affiliated stuff that supports the person making that 
that that that revenue and then of course whatever is billed you still got to pay tax on that so in reality a, a lot of people then um when they get on the other side of the fence it starts to dawn on them how many things they actually have to pay for um you know if uh probably not a conversation for here but our PL for a small business or a smallish business has a lot of lines on it a lot of lines there's a lot of little things that we're paying for uh that all add up and there's a lot of big things that we're paying for that all add up as well yeah and i think that's a, it's a really great point for anyone that or whether in a, a uh, accounting firm or a legal practice and again they make the move to solo that's one thing but then like you said if they try and hire staff and grow it to whole whole another another game so um you know what was it like when you joined the business? Was it similar to your previous experience? Were things different in, in the approach? Or um, what was it like going on that sort of growth and scale-up journey uh, when you joined the second time around? I mean, it's it's different this time because I'm the co-owner of the company, um, which is, is you know, you've got a you've got more pressure on your shoulders because there's no, there's nobody else that the book stops with, so to speak. Whereas when you're part of, when you're an employee at, 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 at somebody else's company, you, the real book always stops with them. Um, so that is something that is, that does weigh on most people's minds. Um, you know, you've got everyone's um, livelihoods in your hands. You've got their, their, their husbands, their wives, their partners, their children, their, their mortgages, their school fees, you know, all that type of stuff. The journey, the journey is fairly similar fundamentally in terms of the actual recruitment piece, but the, but the 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 journey in the day to day is very different now, and there's there's a few reasons for that. First, we're all a little bit older, so the original journey from 2010 to 2015 was probably like a watered down version of Wolf of Wall Street. Um, so you know we're 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 not 26 to 30 year old anymore. Um, I'm I'm 40 this year. Um, so I've just turned 39 last month. Um, so I'm 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 not out seven nights a week like I used to be. Yeah, which is probably a good thing. I'm not not even out probably now seven nights a year. But uh, <laughs> um, so that makes it feel very different. I'm sure that the younger guys are socialising and stuff like that. But um, it's good not to be not to be as as anywhere near involved in that. Um, but also as well, the world has changed from from what happened in 2020. Um, this whole work from home vibe now is very different. You know, in in pri- prior to COVID, we were still firmly in a world of give or take. You're in the office five days a week. Um, it, it, you're in you're in the office five days a week. If you need to work from home because you've got the the the, the plumber coming round, no problem. Work from home. Now we're in a world whereby. Um, let's just say the emphasis is more on just hopefully getting people into the office three days a week and uh and being content with that you know um so it is very different and it creates a different creates a whole different dynamic because people are going a week at a time without seeing each other now if you've got somebody that takes every tuesday off uh, and another person that takes every wednesday off and and so on and so on people can quite easily not see each other for a week or two at a time um so that's creating a different dynamic also as well just the mindset i think of the of the younger generations that have come through since i started out in recruitment 16 17 years ago you know they we all used to be all about the money and we only went into recruitment for the money we then started to potentially fall into liking the good feeling you get by helping people um because you know inherently most people are actually nice people and caring compassionate people um Whereas these days, a lot of it is more about people are wanting that caring and compassion first. It's not all about the money. Um, I think people are coming into the world of work from a more comfortable platform. They're not 1980s babies coming out into a world of work where you're sort of being told there's no safety net. You need to you need to start putting money on the table to pay for your rent. You know, it's a um, you know, we used to we all used to move out of home when we were 18. How many people do you hear of these days that are still living at home at 30 odd? You know, it's a it's a different world, you know. And you think so because they've sort of got the luxury to think a lot more about what they want to do, where they want to work, because it's not how do I pay next week's rent? It's like, oh, well, you know, I live at home and I've got time and I'll explore. And it's different motivations that you've had to adjust to and how you sort of explain the um, the attributes or benefits of a role. 
Yeah, look, it's it's a more comfortable world now. A couple of decades down the line, it's a more affluent world. There's um, there's better social mechanisms and safety nets in place. There's better social welfare um, and all that type of thing. It's a, it's a more comfortable place. Um, it's uh, you know it's it's the sort of quality of living that people are used to has risen decade on decade. I know we're currently in a cost of living crisis and inflation crisis and all that type of thing, which is concerning. Um, hopefully, it's temporary to a certain extent. Um, the world does feel more scary these days, but um, because we've had such significant events like COVID. Um, but on the flip side, we've all been in COVID together. It's one of the few things that's actually impacted us all globally. Um, so again, there's, there is a lot to be said for going through an experience together. Um, th- there are still people out there that do have that same drivers like the guys used to 10, 20 years ago. But there has been, I mean, you must see it yourself, Derek. I mean, there has been a bit of a shift in terms of um, one of the examples that we give is that um, we used to have to tell doctors to work less hours because they wanted to work. We'd send them away for a a two-week block and they'd want to work 14 days out of 14. Um, They'd want to work every hour that God sends, you know, and that type of thing. And some of that was driven by just wanting money, but some of it was driven by, you know, they'd been divorced twice. They'd got three investment properties. They'd got kids going through um, private schools and that type of thing. You know, now junior doctors, to use them as an example, are wanting a much more work-life balance. When they go away somewhere for a couple of weeks to work, they're also wanting to see the sites and travel. And they're also doing part-time study for another qualification. So they want to have days off. So now we're having to, in some cases, encourage them to get a minimum of 10 days a fortnight out of them, as opposed to 10 years ago when we used to be having to negotiate them down from 14 into something that was more suitable, like 11 or 12 days. Yeah, and I imagine some people as well might have looked at the generation ahead of them and then seen longer term, I want to... I don't want more. that. Yeah, yeah, I don't necessarily want that or, or the, the money comes with those sort of trade-offs. And, and I, so- I, I, did it, I did it the same myself. You know, I don't want to get too personal here, but, you know, I've seen some of the things that my family have been through and I'm trying to do things slightly differently and not not be overcommitted in too many areas. Uh, I've ended up uh, being committed quite substantially into a medical recruitment business, but uh, but but aside from that, you know, it's uh, not not wanting to sort of be worried all the time about um, you know how we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, sort of keeping the lifestyle overhead under control, and so that you have more flexibility and choice. Yeah. And so the company's grown very quickly, growing 113% last financial year, doing over $24 million in annual revenue, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. I imagine that a big part of that is the changes and evolutions with COVID. Um, were there other things in particular that you guys did to both kind of generate that growth, but also then to fulfill and support as the, the growth was sort of coming in? Um, so we, we, we're only just over four years old or four and a half years old. Um, so we, we've actually grown year on year for four years. So we didn't, we didn't dial backwards during COVID. So those numbers in 2022 are pure numbers driving through from 20 to 21 to 22. Um, so we didn't have that step back. Like I know a lot of companies did, um, We've been growing quite aggressively, but we're, we're trying to get the balance right between growing aggressive enough to be ambitious, but not growing aggressive enough to overstretch, like we were just talking about in the previous section there about life factors. It's the same in business. You know, if if, if Ben and I were going out and overhiring, um, it would be putting too much financial pressure uh, on the business. It would be putting too much um, day-to-day administration pressure on the business. So we're, we're trying to grow at a, at a steady and sustainable rate of knots. And um, that 24 million figure um, that was that was quoted in the 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 AFI, um, that's probably likely to wash up at about 45 million this year. So we've experienced that level of growth over the last financial year as well. Um, but just to be clear, um, it, that that's a revenue figure, and a large part of that number is the doctor's wages. So we don't really actually focus on the revenue number. Yes, it's the one that gets used for the competition for 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 the AFR, but um internally we have it in the background, but we don't focus on it at all. And um, we focus on net fee income or gross profit, um, whichever which term you use. And then in, in turn, what the EBIT drop from that is, because that then is the true reflection of where your actual margin and your actual costs are. So they're the two numbers that we focus on. Um, 
yeah we're 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 trying to keep on growing and and grow within the sort of the 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 levels that everyone feels comfortable with and not not under stretching but not over stretching yeah and there's a lot of talk in in the media about staff shortages and skill shortages in healthcare from whether it's nurses doctors regional doctors aged care workers what are some of the the biggest factors that you see being intimately involved in the industry causing it and then are there any potential sort of bright spots or solutions in the future that you can see yeah, this is this is my favourite topic to talk about, and it's the one that I get asked uh, most about by people like yourself and uh, and health services and 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 various other people. I mean, <clears throat> looks a complex problem. Um, it's that complex that to try and keep brevity here and not drag this on for too long an episode that nobody will want to listen to. Um, but one of the main things in the healthcare system is you need senior doctors to be in place to supervise junior doctors. So you end up in a bit of a chicken and an egg scenario because if the senior doctors aren't in place, then the junior doctors can't be employed quite often because they can't be supervised. And if there isn't junior doctors there, a lot of the senior doctors don't want to work there because the junior doctors share the workload. They do a lot more of the, you know, in, not in all cases, but they do quite a bit of the more coalface clinical work and are overseen by the seniors. So you end up in a situation where if you don't have the juniors, you struggle to get the seniors sometime and vice versa. Um, and it, it goes around in circles. Then you start amplifying that over the nine or 10 main specialties that I mentioned. And then you start amplifying that over the eight different states and territories. And then you start tying up that conversation into what is an international market. So there's quite a large amount of traffic of doctors moving around the usual countries. Um, Australia and New Zealand, obviously being our local ones, UK and Ireland, Canada and America. Those countries have quite reciprocal arrangements to move the doctors around in some aspects. So there is quite a bit of movement around there. So there's and there's a domestic competition for doctors and there's a there's an international one it also takes quite a long time to become a doctor so i was listening to the uk the other day and the train drivers were on strike and uh, and somebody called in on the radio who was a train driver and he said i don't know why we're panicking here because it only takes something like 12 weeks to train a train driver from start to finish now i don't know if that's true but that's what this chap said on the radio and um, so people were saying why we why are we concerned about the train drivers strike? Why don't we just train some more? Uh, training the train drivers. It sounds a funny, funny sentence, that. Um, but um, the the doctors themselves, I mean, you're looking at six years at university just to get the medical degree. You're looking at one to two years of being an intern or an RMO. Then you start going down your three, four, five, six, seven-year training scheme, depending on which specialty you want to be. So it takes somewhere between 12 to 18 years from start to finish to produce a senior doctor so or a senior specialist doctor in certain fields. So as you can imagine, when the government and the various different healthcare systems are looking at workforce planning, they're trying to look at the current problem they've got now, what they can or can't do with it. And then they're also trying to look 10, 20, 30, 40 years ahead and try and predict what specialisms are going to be needed. And then how do they encourage junior doctors to go into those training schemes at this stage now so that hopefully six to 10 years later, those junior doctors turn into those specialists? And you can see where I'm going with this. It's a very big, um, big, complex puzzle that's put together. Um, there's multiple parts to it as well. There's the medical council, there's the medical board, there's the colleges, there's a Medicare system, there's the immigration system. So you've got all these things in the mix, which create it quite a, a difficult situation to get simple fixes. Bringing in more doctors from overseas is, a, is an obvious solution, but it takes a minimum of six to 12 months to bring a doctor in from overseas. And again, when you bring in a doctor in from overseas, you're competing with other countries to try and secure their their employment. Um, so that's another thing that that happens. Um, the fact that it takes six to twelve months is an understandable um, process. It, I, we feel it could be trimmed in certain areas, but remember, you're starting to get into the realms of patient safety because there's a lot of background checks, clinical checks that happen, and 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 verification that goes on. So it's something that can't really be be shaved too short. It, it is what it is. Um, but it does create a situation where you can't just overnight decide that you're going to go to the UK, pluck 100 doctors out of there and have them working within two weeks. It doesn't work like that. Um, 
one of the things that would improve would be if the hospitals did engage with agencies from a permanent recruitment point of view uh, on a more long-term strategic planning aspect. Um, we have seen some hospitals work with agencies, but they're generally few and far between on the permanent fr- uh, permanent front. So it's quite frustrating for us because one of the things with the international permanent recruitment is it's fraught with many challenges outside of the recruiter's control where the process can fall over. So a, a recruiter can do a lot of work for six to 12 months and then not 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 end up with a placement and not end up being paid for any of their time and effort. So it's something that's quite a difficult thing to balance. Um, from a local point of view, one of the barriers is that the, the states and territories are putting in various tenders and panels. Now, we understand the intent of these, but in a candidate in a candidate rich market doing tendering makes sense because you've got an excess of suppliers that can supply you with that product service or good in our case the product is people namely doctors so where there's an excess of availability it makes sense to do a tender to limit your suppliers get them onto lower rates or lower lower service costs or whatever it might be and then make savings for the system in our world, we're in a candidate short market. We've been in a candidate short market for a long time. Ever since I came to the country 13 years ago, it's been the same. So these tenders are causing us challenges in terms of it's increasing administration, it's time, it's um, it's making us focus on things that aren't actually finding doctors. And um, I totally understand why they what they are taking place, why the procurement teams are doing this, um, and why the government and the states want it. Um, but it is it is a challenge because. People like myself are spending a lot of time going through the motions of trying to make sure that we can secure ourselves onto these tenders. Um, to, the solution to that, we would much rather see um, framework type arrangements put in place where there's a ma- mandatory open framework that the agencies need to adhere to that that are dr- derived from sort of fair and just terms for both parties. And then if you tick the boxes, you go onto the framework and then that's in the background and then you just focus on trying to find doctors. It would make more sense, we feel, than trying to uh, keep jumping through the hoops of tenders. But these things are well above and beyond my control. Um, Things that would help solve some of the issues with healthcare staffing, like more harmonization across the states and territories. They've all got their individual rules and regulations. Um, so the, the, the agencies are working with different work health and safety policies, work cover policies, payroll tax legislation, labor hire licensing. Um, licensing is a new thing to contract recruitment in Australia. I don't know if you've heard it about it from any of your other people that have spoken before, but it was meant for low wage and vulnerable sectors. And unfortunately, several states and territories have, have rolled it out to cover all contract recruitment. So it's another cost admin expense that doesn't really have any benefit in the in the in the in the in the white collar high end of the market. And um, South Australia were sensible. They they repealed it back and uh, took it back down to just applying to low level vulnerable um, parts of the workforce. And Queensland Health, uh, sorry, not Queensland Health, Queensland State. Um, put in place a cap as well so that it is only applying to the lower income and more vulnerable um, sections sections of the market. But unfortunately, due to the health requirements of the Queensland state, we have to still have a license. So three of the states, we have to have a license. And again, it's just more cost that then we're, we're not able to pass more savings onto the system and it just costs the taxpayer more money. So and you mentioned sort of a, you know, Australia, New Zealand market, the sort of UK, Ireland market, the uh, Canada, US market, uh, any of them, everyone's like in the same boat, like you said, because it's an international market and there's no place we can quickly become a doctor, nor would you want there to be. But is there any of those markets that you see doing a bit better? Like I said, there's less paperwork, it's a bit simpler, it's more streamlined, or is everyone roughly at the same level with things a little bit better here, a little bit worse there compared to Australia? They've all they've all got their own pros and cons. Um, so they've all they've all got fundamentally a semi-similar system in place, just with different names for the processes, different forms, different timelines, and that type of thing. Um, other countries have got things in place where there are easier routes in for certain categories of doctors, but you know it, it, these things change on on a sort of a not on an annual basis usually, but every couple of years that the countries will try and assess where they're at, what they need, and what things can they do to put in place so for example it's easier for a doctor to get into new zealand than it is to get into australia that's a a well-known fact most of the doctors prefer to come to australia because the income's higher in australia 
um, but then the quality of living in some parts of New Zealand might be different. And, you know, it, there's, it's it's this constant trade-off. Australia's got, you know, great benefits. Um, you know, it's a really attractive country for doctors to come and work in. And that's why so many doctors do choose to do so. Um, so it does have a lot of benefits, but it is... Um, it is in that market where they are competing. Australia's biggest rival usually is Canada. Um, so doctors sat in the UK and Ireland um, are mainly initially debating whether they move to Australia or Canada. And then it often comes down to, I'm not saying it entirely comes down to this, but it usually comes down to a climate choice. Um, there is the fact that Canada is significantly closer to the UK and Ireland in terms of getting back home. Um, but then the climate is a big factor. Obviously, Canada predominantly being a lot colder than Australia. Um, although I don't know whether either country's got any consistency in its weather at the moment. And what about the US market? It's quite different from what I understand from a, a healthcare sort of point of view. Are there uh, benefits of doctors going to the US? Like I said, like you said, someone from the UK or Ireland, or they don't tend to consider the US as much for, for different reasons? Doctors do go to the US um, from the UK and Ireland and Australia and other countries. Um, it, we don't see the traffic flow being as, as big. We, we just observe it as well. We don't actively work the US market, or we certainly don't at the moment. It, although it is categorised in what they call the six competent authority pathway um, countries, it, it is totally different. So as as everybody knows, it's a full private model over there. Um, they've got a much different sort of training process for the doctors. So the doctors actually work in a different manner to the other five countries as well. They've gone through a different sort of regiment of training and have a different way of working. And then again, it's, it's much more commercialized. So I think it's a, a bigger gulf for, for doctors to transition into. Um, we don't see that much of it, you know, and it's, again, I suspect that, other than people that might be madly in love with America, if they are making that move for any other reason, it might often be because they've got family connections there and they're going closer to it. Um, so it is something that does we do see, but it's it's not as uh, proportionately bigger volume. What about US doctors heading into those other markets? Do they tend to go out or is that same barriers and complexities that makes it harder than moving between the other markets? They've got the same barriers and complexities. I mean, I don't know what the latest stats are on the US doctors coming to Australia, I'm embarrassed to say, but um, I, I know that we did used to have um, a slow and steady trickle of them several years ago. But then as the years have gone by, there's been changes with the senior doctors and the colleges of getting into Australia, which has made some of it more difficult. Um, not all colleges, but some of them. Um, and that has meant that if the American doctor is weighing things up, they potentially, you know, might choose another country or choose to stay put. Um, but there are some very skilled, very successful American doctors that we've worked with that are currently still working in Australia. Um, and then those doctors then are uh, then usually in the merry-go-round of trying to balance their tax situation because they've obviously got the the worldwide situation that the US imposes on them, and then they've also got a similar situation that Australia imposes on them, but not quite as uh, not quite as draconian as the US. Yeah, and so you're always watching, I imagine, all these international markets and, and sort of business more generally. And you've worked in the UK, worked in Australia. What trends do you see in entrepreneurship more broadly in Australia? What are a lot of Australian entrepreneurs you come across doing really well? And then where are areas you think there's extra room for improvement that maybe they're not seeing? I think, look, I don't know how well qualified I am to speak about this, but I mean, the it, it feels like in Australia, people are giving it a go. Um, it doesn't, it feels like an environment where if you want to give it a go, you can give it a go. Um despite all the complexities of working across the eight states and territories and all the challenges that brings. Um, and the it, But it also feels as well for many people that I see that they're also giving it a go, but not at the point where it's driving them into the ground and they you know don't have any life. Like a lot of guys seem to have a good manage of building a business and also having some form of whatever the definition of work-life balance is. And um, we we actually have a software company called F2F Solutions, and we've got a product called HealthPass, um, and that has been my first foray into something that isn't medical recruitment. Um, it's connected to healthcare, but it is it is essentially a tech business, and um, that's actually started to open my eyes to um, to 
the, the sort of thing that you're talking about that maybe that tech entrepreneur side of things and that type of space from what i can see it seems like it's quite supported by the government i don't know how much that support is flowing through into the reality i know that they're trying to make a tech hub in sydney and uh, well they've made a tech hub in sydney i don't know how successful it is at this stage and i'm probably going to find out in the not too distant future but it, it does feel that they're certainly um trying to do the best they can despite being quite a small population that is very remotely positioned in the world. You know, Australia is only 25 million people or 26 million people, whatever the latest poll was. And, you know, that is a lot smaller than a lot of other markets. And that does create a a situation. And then when you're an Australian-based company and then you're trying to sell maybe to overseas markets, you've got to overcome that tyranny of distance and the time zones. So, you know, if if you're in the UK and you're trying to sell to the US, you can offset your sales team to to be um you know four five six hours offset you can't do that in australia because you've got the 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 nine to eleven hour time zone difference in that market uh, you know so there's 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 things like that which um you know until you get into it you don't really think about but it does it does cause an ongoing challenge and uh, and anybody who's wanting to do that type of real international entrepreneurship down here has to deal with being remotely positioned challenged by the time zone and in a small domestic market if they're trying to sell something that needs high volume yeah and um if you were sort of looking back to yourself at 18 to 20 where you know you've chopped and changed what you're studying you're not sure exactly what you're going like you said you sort of fell into um a, a certain sector that a lot of people don't formally sort of study what would you say to someone who's that age right now they finish high school they're not sure what to do they finish university they're not sure what to do um what advice would you give that person about maybe things to think about or things to, to try um i tell you, before just before we come on to that derek there's one thing i forgot on that last question about the the challenges for the entrepreneurs and whatnot and just briefly like i think one of the biggest issues at the moment is um getting is like everyone knows is getting hold of staff getting hold of skilled staff um we follow the immigration space quite closely and one of the things i think is holding australia back is the maybe not so much the complexity but certainly the cost of the immigration processes now and we we only this week made the decision not to hire somebody because of the training levy that the um the immigration department applied to us so you know there is visas have become substantially more expensive and it is factoring in in certain companies processes and 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 plans in terms of how they how they staff up for the companies that have gone and got venture capital funding and they've got millions of dollars to throw around and that type of thing maybe it's not so much of an issue and they don't mind just throwing $7,200 at the government for the privilege of getting a visa on top of the visa costs, because that's what the training levy costs for four years. Um, and it's just money that you you don't get any further access to. You can't access that training levy yourself. Um, and it's, it's a minor thing in some circles, but I suspect in other areas it is becoming more of a challenge because obviously the more financial pressure being put on people, the, the, the more... And different the business decisions might be being made. So I, I do think Australia could improve in terms of that. The the one example given out of that the other week was the day or the day after um, the Medibank uh, data breach or the other, can't remember whether it was a Medibank one or the other one happened, uh, the immigration department announced that they were removing cybersecurity specialists from the skills list. Now, then I read a news article yesterday, only a month or two later, that the most in-demand skill set in Australia now that companies are crying out for are cybersecurity skill set people. So, I mean, you know, that to me in itself feels a little bit like left-hand and right-hand situation. But, uh, but yeah, sorry, I just thought I'd mention that because I, I forgot to mention it. No, that's a great point. And I imagine as well, if someone doesn't work out after a couple of months, there's no refund or, or pro rata on, on the, a lot of those fees, it's, right? It's, it's just in a black hole. So they do, they do have a refund system of, of sorts. Um, surprisingly, it takes months to get the refund process. So they, they can take your money immediately, but to give it you back, they take some time. But the worst, it's not a full refund system. It has to be applied for. But the worst thing is actually if you don't get the visa approved. So if you apply for a visa, which you don't, know whether they will or won't get approved because there's so many things that have to be ticked to get a visa and if they are rejected you still lose your training levy now i only found that out recently and i'm still reeling from it and so i'm I'm hoping to maybe find somebody that might give me that uh, training levy back in the near future but we'll see yeah, it's like you said, it's not so much a total dollar cost. It's the fact that it's a sunk cost. You can't get it back. There's a lot of uh, lack of transparency. 
um, versus if you said I've got someone, they're good, and then okay, if there's a percentage of their wage, like a payroll tax, maybe that you'd feel different. When it's an upfront, non-refundable, non-sort of transferable, it's completely different calculus for the business. Exactly. That's actually that's actually not a bad suggestion. Some kind of here we go again. Let's put a levy on foreign workers. There you go. You can see if, see if that's the next policy that comes out. Yeah, or, or they keep the upfront fee and then add a levy to, uh, to add a bit <laughs> no extra. Let's, a levy let's, on the levy. Let's, Let's maybe not give them any ideas. <laughs> yeah, so, so we circle back to those sort of um, someone who's just out of high school, just out of uni, out of TAFE. They're not sure what to do. They're kind of looking around. They're, they're young and, and, and big world in front of them. They, they want to travel. What do they want to start a business, work in a business? Um, what would you sort of say to that person who's maybe that uh, junction point in their life right now? You you mentioned like your 18 to 20-year-old self. So 18, uh, certainly I think it's the same in Australia as in the UK, that you're at that juncture there where you're considering going to uni. I, I would strongly reconsider going to university knowing what I know now. Um, don't get me wrong, I think university has got great benefits, especially in terms of social development and that type of thing. Um, it, one of the real things about university as well is it often gets people out of their home. So if you live in a regional or rural area in the depths of the rural countryside of England or Scotland or whatever, you know, then you have to go to one of the big smokes, so to speak, and it, it makes you grow up quite quickly and develop. Um, but unless you're doing one of the main traditional courses, medicine, law, engineering, those types of things, or something else that's definitely a technical or highly technical or highly creative um uh, career pathway i genuinely do question the, the the validity of going to university for three or four years and and coming out of the far end with that debt um, especially now as my understanding is that the debt is so much higher than what it used to be um when i went through uni 20 years ago and um, so i think people need to think long and hard I, I i would think long and hard about that myself knowing what i know now um I don't I'm not sure if anything that I learned at uni is translated into the the, the business world. And I did a business degree, uh, crazy as that sounds, um, and certainly nothing translated into um, teaching you how to run a company. Um, if I had my time again, maybe I'd consider starting out earlier on my own or with other partners. But I mean, I wasn't in a position to do that when when I was at the stage where I felt uh experienced enough to do that i was in the throes of uh going through an acquisition and an earnout and that type of thing so i had to bide my time for a few more years so that's just one of those things but um but yeah it's um not to underestimate how difficult it is to run a business i think if people are keen on doing it then maybe do it at a younger age um but but again, it's it's easy to say because everyone's always in different positions. Um, but yeah, if speaking to my 18, 20 year old self again, I'd be uh, I'd be advising them to um to to maybe maybe think long and hard about uh, about getting into uh, medical recruitment and all its craziness. <laughs> and um, I mean, one of the the thing a, a counterpoint some people might say is that a lot of jobs, like you said, the knowledge from the degree does not apply to the job, but it is like a sort of a bullet point on a checklist that a lot of recruiters yeah. might say you need to have a degree in order to apply for this job. And if you don't have a degree, that would limit the amount of jobs. Do you see less of a focus on that, where people are more willing to put an eighteen to twenty year old into a in an appropriate role for their skill set, even if they don't have a degree, versus having blanket requirements for degrees? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm even guilty of probably going back on what I just said there because I've made similar decisions recently while looking at different people's CVs for hiring for ourselves and was was pleased to see that one of them had a degree and that they'd been through that formal process of university for three years and had achieved a qualification. And as I say, I, I think uni can show that you can go through a process tick the boxes hit you know revise hit marks start being sort of maybe i don't know conditioned into the reality of actually doing something consistently to a certain standard so it does have a lot of value don't get me wrong um but i think the right person and the right personality can overcome not having the degree again it depends what we're talking about here you know Obviously, it's an easy decision for some of the larger PLC listed companies to just have a have a have a blanket cut off. You've either got a degree or you don't have a degree. They get thousands of applicants to their junior positions. So, you know, if you're looking for a mechanism to cut it down, degree or no degree, cut it, cut it straight in half or whatever it might be and, and get rid of half of those people. Those other half that don't have a degree might end up in those companies further down the line, but they're probably going to have to go and um, do something else somewhere else to get some experience commercially before before transferring back. And um, so, I, I to take a step back, there is still um, 
uh, merit in going to university. That's without a doubt. But I think people need to be, my goodness, Derek, when I was leaving the UK, people were doing degrees in Man United studies, you know? So, I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, when you start hearing stories about people going to university and wasting three years of their life and however much money of both their money, their parents' money and government money to do a degree in David Beckham, uh, as as was the case at the time, um, then, you know, you, you start to question the reality of it. Um, I'm on the impression as well that universities are quite a different place these days as well. There's a, there's a significantly different agenda being pushed in universities these days from what we can tell. So again, I wouldn't be, uh, I don't have children myself, but I would be strongly steering them away from going anywhere that had a reputation for, uh, let's just say, talking waffle instead of getting down to the harsh reality of life. Yeah, I think one other piece also on visas, I think most visa requirements in a lot of countries actually require a degree. They're not as good. I don't know if that's something you've seen as as well. I mean, you're recruiting at a very specialised level, but even just for other levels. um, Yeah, so that was the one thing that my degree has done for me or one of the few things that my degree has done for me, because there is more than one, but one is getting into Australia originally back in 2010 or whenever it was. Um, you can still get into Australia without a degree. You just need more experience. Um, so it's a it's a way of accelerating that. But I suppose, you know, in reality, what percentage of the population ever emigrate to work overseas? So, you, you know, you've got to factor these things in. Again, I'm not anti-university. Don't get me wrong. You know, um, it's just that it is something that I think, and I'm, I'm quite confident in saying a lot of people that have a degree, if you ask them the same question, they'd probably say similar, you know, at least think about it and maybe consider what options you could go into um, the workforce sooner rather than uh, going for at least three, if not four years of your life in something that, you know, you may or may not use in the future. Again, very different for the traditional subjects, very different indeed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, like you said, that maybe that's part of the the disconnect, that the value has sort of eroded, but there are still these checklists. And and so people are torn between, well, what am I getting this cost and commitment versus well it's still a, a barrier on these various checklists so that that's sort of I guess where the gap might also be appearing yeah I mean at this stage if I was 18 year old I'd be not going to university and I'd be trying to get an apprenticeship or some kind of junior position in a cybersecurity firm and then probably getting about three years under my belt and then going out and charging an extortionate daily rate <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so to finish us off, what, what does the future look like for One Medical? Um, again, the healthcare is, is very topical in the last couple of years for obvious reasons, but do you have like a five-year direction or plan? We've talked about the challenges. You've mentioned software. Is it more of a tech focus? Is it, um, you know, again, something connecting with international markets? Where do you see that the medium-term um, vision or, or goal or direction for One Medical? Yeah, so Ben and I make plans, uh, as do myself and other members of the senior team. Um, The the tech business is a separate business. It complements the recruitment business, but it is a separate business. Um, So our our plan with that is to, it's already a revenue generating company. um, So our plan this year is to scale it significantly. So we've we've got some significant plans for that. And, uh, you know, our goal with that is to try and save the healthcare system time and money and reduce risk. Um, in terms of uh, One Medical Australia, the previous journey we had with the other company that was mentioned earlier, we built that business to be what we estimated to be number one in the market based on volume at the time when uh, when it was at its peak. Um, I don't know where it is now, but um, but I'm just referring to when I was uh, when I was there. Um, we we don't necessarily want to do the same with One Medical, but we do. We do have more growth to go uh, and we'll see where that goes. We want to try and keep the balance right between getting the right people on board, keeping them happy um, and and seeing, seeing where it goes to a certain extent. I mean, inherently, we are ambitious, so I suspect we won't ever hold back on growth if we can keep growing. But there is a limit probably in terms of you need to do it in the right way because um, recruiters like to feel part of a journey. And if it starts to turn into something that feels like a bit of a factory or feels like a bit of a you know if you start having staff turnover and there isn't any strong culture then you know you you start to run the risk of just becoming a numbers machine and um, now again some of those things are difficult to avoid but we've got some good ideas on how we avoid that as we grow and um, maybe this new world of flexible working and work from home might might help some of that you know it's a different different space we've already got a couple of guys working remotely and um, 
speaking about we've we've got um internationally we need to get new zealand off the ground properly covid slowed us down with that um we have got some doctors working in new zealand but we don't have a formal presence there yet um so we're, we're looking at trying to address that as soon as we can but um, our main international plan at the moment is we've uh, one of the original uh team from years ago back in back in australia was a chap called peter healy um he has now got the uh, the irish business of one medical off the ground and uh, he's pulled the team together in dublin so we're we're focused on time and investment into that over uh, over the course of this year uh, as we have been last year uh, to to start recreating what we've done in australia in the irish market so our core focus down here will be the Australian market. Peter's core focus up in the Northern Hemisphere will be the Irish market. And uh, and then we've got the, the 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 software business on the side of that as well that we're dealing with. So that's the that's the plan. And would some of the benefit be if someone wants to move overseas, you can support the same candidate from New Zealand to Australia, vice versa, from Ireland to Australia, vice versa. So they can essentially stay as one of your staff. But, you know, if they say, put up their hands and say, how I want to move, you can help facilitate and they don't have to find another sort of support. And um, is that a big part of it? Or is it also obviously supporting different hospitals and locally, but also being able to assist the candidate journey across different markets if they're interested in that? Yeah, so if a doctor's working in one of those countries and they want to move to the other one, we introduce them and vice versa. Um, whether we can help or not, depending on the type, because again, the markets are different. So the type of skills that are in significant shortage in the different countries can differ at different times. Um, but we we do successfully move doctors back and forth. Um, it, one Medical Australia's business revenue, though, is well over 95% driven from local domestic um workers in australia already the international piece is a smaller part because of all the technical pieces that i mentioned about it earlier and um, ireland at the moment is a slightly different model it is more international bringing people in from overseas into ireland uh, but we're looking to grow that domestic um domestic presence uh, uh, as soon as we physically can excellent and do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with um look not not really i mean i i suppose um for anybody who's listening who's not in the recruitment field, I'm, I'm hoping that by listening to these type of things, you're starting to get more of an insight into what goes on in recruitment. And uh, we are all trying to do the best job that we can. And it's really difficult because we, uh, we are the only thing that sells a product that's alive and kicking and that product is people. So we're selling in two different directions continually. And uh, so bear that in mind when uh, I know a lot of recruiters get a bad rap because uh, the person on the uh, the end of the service sometimes feels they've been hard done by. But we can assure you that we're, we're dealing with uh, with uh, two sets of people and all of these processes, which causes issues. And uh, if there's any doctors out there that are listening to this uh, or any health services managers, directors, departments, medical admins, etc., be uh, always keen to hear from you and reach out to, to One Medical at any time. Excellent. Thanks so much, Ryan. No, cheers for your time, Derek. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.